We are in the Gospel of John this morning, and uh, if you are new around here or weren't here last week when we started this book together, we have a bunch of these ESV uh, scripture journals that are right back here on our resource table. Feel free to grab one of these. We would love for you to use this throughout this study and just kind of keep it with you and keep all of your notes on the Gospel of John uh, in one place. Uh, so please grab one of those. Uh, we have a bunch that are back there and more. Um, we're going to be in John chapter 1 this morning, starting in verse 19. John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Let me read this to us. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me. Because he was before me, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remained, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so as I mentioned, we began uh, this book last week after uh, spending the better part of a year uh, walking through the Old Testament minor prophets. We hopped from uh, the last minor prophet of the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, here to the Gospel of John, and man, it has just been, a, it's been an awesome segue. Uh, Taylor and I were talking this week about the fact that we've never, we've never like read through Malachi and then immediately jumped to John's Gospel, because normally, you're, what do you do? You just go to Matthew if you're just reading in a linear way throughout the Scripture, and yet, man, there are so many interesting parallels between Malachi and John, some of which we will see Today, Last week, we primarily talked about the first 18 verses in this book, which are known as the prologue to John's gospel. It is a little bit uh, poetic in nature, that prologue. It is meant to kind of set up John's gospel, and we explored five different themes that we see in the prologue. And um, this week, we move to the story of John the Baptist. And even though John the Apostle, who's writing this gospel, even though this gospel is markedly different from the other three, all the gospel writers seem to share in common this belief that the earthly story of Jesus 
really begins with the story of John the Baptist. Um, Mark, probably the first gospel, begins with the story of John the Baptist. Uh, Luke begins with the story of the birth of John the Baptist. Uh, Matthew talks about Jesus' birth first, but then immediately jumps to the story of John the Baptist. And even here in John, we get a prologue, but then we immediately jump into the story of John the Baptist. Um, John, the apostle writing this gospel, he started in a very different place, as we said last week. He didn't just start at the beginning of the life, earthly life of Jesus. He didn't start at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. No, he took us all the way back to like the cosmic beginning. The first words of this gospel were in the beginning, which are meant to draw our attention back to the book of Genesis, like that beginning, like that's what we're talking about. And the thing that John really wants us to take away here in this first chapter, among many, I think the primary thing is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He says this in, in such an explicit way that, that is different from the way that the other gospel writers declare Jesus to be Lord. Um, like he says this as somebody who is writing to non-believers possibly. And we talked about that a little bit last week. Even though the early church would have used John's gospel, it's quite possible that John was writing with unbelievers in mind, uh, whether they be Jew or Gentile, who weren't fully on board with Jesus being the Messiah. And so immediately he jumps into not just the story of Jesus, but the identity of Jesus. Who is he and what has he come to do. It's an incredibly prominent theme here. Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not just a wise teacher. He's not like a subordinate son to the Father. Um, and, and this is maybe most intriguing, he's not simply the Messiah. He's not only the Messiah. What John says is, no, he is the literal agent of creation. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made says that in such an interesting way. I don't know if you noticed this last week either, but if you look at the prologue, those first 18 verses, John only says the name Jesus once, and it's not until verse 17. So he's writing a gospel, which we said is, is ostensibly a biography of Jesus, and yet he goes... 17 verses into this before he even mentions Jesus. He primarily calls him the word, or in the Greek, the logos. We talked about how John gives us glimpses in his language of the mystery of the Trinity, the mystery of God's triune nature, that he is three in one, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So somehow the word was with God, and yet the word was God. And we can accept that as true, but at the same time, we can't fully grasp the mechanics of that. It, like, you can't be with someone and also that person at the same time. And yet somehow this is true when we start talking about the word or when we start talking about Jesus. But then he wraps up, wraps up this prologue with an equally strange statement. Look at verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God, the only God 
Who is at the Father's side? He has made him known. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And that may seem like some more word salad to us related to the triune nature of God, but we have to unpack this a little bit. Here's here's what I think John is saying here. First of all, the first part's clear, right? No one has ever seen God. This claim is made uh, throughout the Old Testament, uh, that while certain people or groups have had like visions or, or glimpses of God, no one has truly ever seen him fully. Exodus thirty three twenty three 23 comes to mind here. It says, no man can see God and live. No man can see me and live, God says in Exodus. And in this context... I don't, I don't know if seeing God only means like gazing on him visually. I think there's also an element of this that includes like mentally grasping who God is, like mentally grasping the fullness of God. In other words, it's not only that no one has ever seen him fully, but also no man has like the mental slash spiritual capacity to fully understand him or to fully take him in, not just to to see him, but to like see him. In other words, God is not only unviewable, he is incomprehensible. And God here, by the way, is inclusive of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But, But then look at that next clause, or the next two clauses, really, the only God who is at the Father's side. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. And here John uses a word that he's famous for. It's a Greek word, monogonos, monogonos. And the ESV renders that here as the word only, only, the only God who is at the Father's side. Um, But this is a word that... I think English translators have historically struggled with because it doesn't simply mean only. It it, it almost means something like the only, only, the only, only. The same Greek word is used most famously in uh, probably the most famous Bible verse in the world from John's gospel, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only monogamous, his only begotten son. Or as the NIV says, he gave his one and only son. That's, that's their attempt to kind of capture what that word is really getting at, his one and only son. They're trying to get at not simply the onlyness of Jesus, but also the uniqueness of his onlyness. For John, somehow Jesus is the only God, and yet he is at the Father's side who is also God. So there's more of this Trinitarian mystery here. But then look at the last part of this. He has made him known. And I think what John is saying here is that Jesus, who is at the Father's side, who is also God, that he is making the Father known to us. We have never seen God, the Father, but his one and only Son, who is at his side, has made him known to us. 
Here are some other ways that that verse is translated. This is the New American Standard. No one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son, who is in the arms of the Father, has explained him. That's one of the most literal renderings of this verse. Uh, The NIV says, no one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son, who is in the arms of the Father, he has explained him. The New King James says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So, So do you kind of, do you get what John's trying to say here? That, that Jesus, the only Son of God, is so one with the Father that it's like they're like embracing. He, he's like in the arms of the Father, in the bosom of the Father, and it is Jesus who is explaining to us or revealing to us or, or making apparent to us who God really is. So don't miss this. John's saying Jesus didn't come just to tell us about himself. He came to reveal the Father to us. So we said last week that as we read John, we want to be asking, who is Jesus? But then we also want to be asking, who is Jesus revealing the Father to be? Because we said, particularly in John's gospel, Jesus says things like, I and the Father am one. So in revealing himself, Jesus is also revealing to us who God the Father is. He says things like, I can only do what I see my Father doing. So when we see Jesus, when we see his words, his actions, his ideas, his restorative work, he is pointing us not just to himself, but to our Trinitarian God, and in particular to God the Father. And so we jump from that immediately into the story of John the Baptist, which almost feels a little bit like a non sequitur. But John the Apostle here, or sometimes he's called John the Evangelist, who's writing this gospel. John the Apostle is in a unique position to tell us about John the Baptist, because unlike the other gospel writers, John was possibly a close disciple of John the Baptist before he was a disciple of Jesus. Look uh, down at verse 35. We didn't read this in our text, but let me read this to us. John one thirty-five. The next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. So he's standing with two of his followers, and he looks to Jesus, points him out, and says, Behold the Lamb of God. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So that's significant, right? Like, their rabbi, John, points out Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. He's identifying him for who he is as the Christ, as the Messiah, And those two disciples immediately begin following Jesus. Verse 38, and Jesus turned. And by following, it means they literally started following him, like walking after him. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? 
He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So John the Baptist identifies two uh, of his disciples, uh, but only one is named. Like he identifies Jesus, I should say, to two of his disciples, but only one is named here in the gospel, and that's Andrew, the brother of Peter. But many scholars, and I think to a certain extent tradition, um, hold that that second disciple more than likely is John himself, that this is the one who comes to be called in this gospel the disciple whom Jesus loved. John the son of Zebedee, John the apostle. But this disciple, um, and that might be a bit speculative, by the way, um, but John gives us an account here that we don't find anywhere else. Um, And it reads like a firsthand account. Look at verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So John the Baptist, it's the testimony of John the Baptist. The Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So a coalition of Jewish officials come out to John the Baptist, uh, out in the wilderness, baptizing to ask him who he is. And what they're really asking him is, by what authority are you baptizing people? Like, why? where do you get off doing this? Baptism was not a new concept. I mean, it was a somewhat common thing. It was normal for Gentile proselytes, uh, like Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. It was common for them to be baptized. There were also some Hebrew religious groups that would engage in like daily baptism. It was more of a ritualistic kind of cleansing type thing. But by all accounts, most of those baptisms were self-administered. It wasn't what we think of as baptism where uh, some Somebody who is a minister is uh, baptizing another person, like where it takes two people in order for baptism to happen. But, but John is out in the wilderness, and he personally is baptizing people. Like people are coming to the Jordan, and, and he is immersing them in water, and um, they come to him, and, and they, because, because that, to, to some extent, I think indicates authority. Right, that that I I am putting myself into this position where where I am baptizing another person, and and so they ask him, who who are you? Where do you get off? What gives you the right to do this? John's baptism, however, was different, and that he said the purpose wasn't simply cleansing, and the purpose wasn't necessarily like conversion, you know, like in the sense of converting to Judaism, the purpose was repentance, turning from sin, living a new life. This group of officials was from Jerusalem, John tells us, uh, which we could perhaps take to mean that they were reflective of the Sanhedrin or sent from the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council, sort of a Supreme Court of sorts. Um, 
It could be possible that they were temple officials that had been sent out to John. And it was kind of a mixed bag. There, there are priests there. There are Levites there. Um, it, it's not clear. It mentions uh, the Pharisees as well. And I think most commentators take it to mean that there were Pharisees in this group as well, whereas the priests and Levites were historically more of uh, the Sadducees, which were a different group. But, but then later... And that's in verse 24, there are Pharisees questioning him, and, and it seems to all be from this same group. But, but look, verse 20, John responds, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, they didn't ask him that. Like, they, they didn't say, are you the Messiah? Are you, are you this son of David or this new David that has been foretold? They ask him why he's baptizing. Why are you doing what you're doing? And he confessed, I am not the Christ. That's where he starts. And then verse 21, they asked him, well, so what then? Who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So John the Baptist seems to think that what they're really asking him is, are you claiming to be the Messiah? Are you claiming to be the one that the prophets said was coming? And he readily responds, no, that's not me. So then they ask him if he's Elijah. And, and we touched on this a few weeks ago. This is one of those dovetails with the book of Malachi. Um, and, and I'm not going to go into great detail with this today because we talked about it at length a few weeks ago. But um, in Malachi, we saw this prophecy of a coming Elijah. Elijah was somebody who predated the minor prophets, and yet Malachi says there's going to be another Elijah who's coming, who, who is, in a sense, going to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Um, Jesus says in Matthew 11, uh, starting in verse 7, um, that Jesus began to speak to crowds concerning John, John the Baptist. Um, and he says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. John was famous for wearing animal skins and a leather belt, uh, which was also the garb of Elijah in the Old Testament. Jesus goes on, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written by Malachi, um, no, I'm sorry, by Isaiah, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So there he references Malachi. So what's interesting here is John says, I am not Elijah. And yet over in Matthew, Jesus says, no, he, he is Elijah. If you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So, so who's right here? Like, who's telling the truth here? I'll refer back to uh, Luke's gospel that we talked about a few weeks ago in Malachi, where Zechariah, who is the father of John the Baptist, has an angelic vision. And what the angel told Zechariah was that his son 
would come in the spirit of Elijah. He didn't claim, the angel didn't say, oh, this is like a reincarnated Elijah. Remember we said that reincarnation is a concept that is foreign to the scriptures. But instead, this is, this is like a new Elijah. This is somebody who is coming in the same way, uh, as the, the same spirit as the prophet Elijah. Jesus is saying that John is the fulfillment of this prophecy. But John is saying that he's not literally Elijah. And so to that end, everyone is right here. Like everybody's telling the truth here. They also ask him if he is, quote, the prophet. And who they're talking about here is Moses. Moses is such a significant figure that he is referred to as the prophet. But John denies that as well. Instead, he identifies himself with a prophecy from Isaiah that said, make straight the way of the Lord or prepare the way for the Lord. So John's role, which he fulfills perfectly, is to garner a massive following. And then he takes that following and he directs their attention to Christ and he says, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Now here's the thing. I believe that the mission that Jesus has given us as the church is not really all that different from what John the Baptist was sent to do. And this is a mission that we hold both as individuals and corporately to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to our world and to say, behold the Lamb of God. And I want us to consider three truths today as I close out. First of all, if you are a believer... God has used someone, or perhaps multiple people, in your life to point you to Christ. If you're a believer now, God has used someone, or maybe lots of people, in your life to point you to Christ. And more than likely, as I say that, there are people that are popping into your head. Like, there are people that you immediately think of. For me, I had an incredibly influential youth minister when I was a teenager. Like, somebody, I mean, now, 25 years later, I still think about and whose words and whose life still resonate with me. And my guess would be that as you think about the people in your life who have pointed you to Christ... They, they have done that not only through their words. They have pointed you to Christ not only by saying, hey, let me tell you about Jesus, or let me unpack the truths of Scripture for you, or let me present you with the gospel in some kind of formal way. They have done that, but my guess would be that they have also modeled the way of Jesus or modeled a Christian life in front of you, perhaps with you not even being aware that they've not only told you, but they've also shown you what it is like to be a follower of Jesus. 
that, that both of those things are true, and that it wasn't only their words, but it was also them. It was also their life that was compelling to you. There was also something about them that made you think, I want what they have. I've heard plenty of stories of people who have not only heard the gospel, not only whose hearts have been illumined by the truth of Christ, but who have also seen the gospel displayed and demonstrated in the lives of others, and that those two things together have brought them to Christ. That the Lord has used not just words, but also the example. I've heard plenty of stories of kids who maybe didn't grow up in a home where Jesus was central or where Jesus was even a thing, but, but who come into the homes of Christian friends and experience not only their words, but they also experience like a household that, however imperfectly, is striving to follow after Christ and that there's something deeply compelling about that. And they were forever changed. So if you're a believer, God has used someone in your life. But also if you're a believer, God desires for you to be that someone. God desires to use you to point others to Christ. And again, not just in word, not just by formally presenting the gospel to people, but by truly living a gospel-centered life in front of others. We talk about this all the time. Like, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a sent one of Christ. Later in John's gospel, he says to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. The New Testament says we are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We're emissaries. We're representatives of the realm where he rules and reigns. God desires you to be the kind of person whose words, whose deeds, whose very life, however imperfectly, is pointing other people to the truth of the gospel. And, and then third, that work is both confessional and experiential. Meaning, we want people not only to hear about Jesus, we also want them to see Jesus. And that was John the Baptist's task, not just to say that a Messiah was coming, but to say, behold, the Lamb of God, to take his followers and to divert their gaze, to divert their attention to Jesus and go, that's him. That's the guy I've been talking about. And notice how John says, and it says a couple of times in our text, I didn't know who he was. And, and what we know about John is that he was a relative of Jesus. I think we talked about this a little bit last week, the dual nature of Christ, right? That he is both God and man, and, and that we have a hard time grasping that. We have a hard time holding that, and so our tendency is to want to err on one side of the other or, or the other when we think of Jesus. Like, we, we either want to think of him as being mostly God, or we either want to think of him as being mostly human. And what's interesting here is that John has seemingly, we, would, we speculate here, but seemingly grown up with Jesus, like grown up knowing this person. And if you err on the side of thinking that Jesus is mostly God, then, then you know, the, 
The analogy is that Jesus is a baby who never pooped, right? Like that, that Jesus was this perfect child, and then, you know, Jesus grew up into this perfect preteen who was then this perfect teenager, and every, like he was just Jesus the whole time. And yet it's so fascinating to me that even though he was Jesus, and even though his life is perfect, John goes, I didn't know it was him. He says, but God told me who you see the spirit of God resting on that, that's the one. Behold, the Lamb of God. So, so this is both confessional, but it's also experiential. That we would be people who not only point out Jesus to people, but that we would be ambassadors bringing a foretaste of what the kingdom of God is like. Because we not only need to hear the gospel, we also need to have an encounter with the gospel. We not only need to hear about God's grace, we need to have an experience of God's grace. So don't miss this. John the Baptist points us to Christ. Who points us to the Father? He points us to Christ who points us to the Father. And now we as the church exist in a similar role along with the Holy Scriptures, along with the Holy Spirit, to point people to Christ. And as a result, to God himself. These priests... And Levites and Pharisees, they come and they ask John to give an account for what he's doing. Who do you say that you are? Where do you get off doing this? Why are you doing this? They saw his actions and they said, what is, what is this all about? It makes me think of 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. What Peter's getting at there is that the experience that other people should have with us is an experience where maybe they, they like see the effects of the gospel. They see like the ramifications of a Christ-centered life, perhaps first. And that that elicits questions. And here's what I think. I think that when we're really doing this, when we're really living this Christ-centered life, it's deeply compelling, but it's also deeply polarizing. It's deeply polarizing. Because my experience has been, and Lord knows I don't do this perfectly, but my experience has been that either people are deeply compelled by it or, or they're like appalled by it. They're either like attracted to it like a magnet or it's like the other side of the magnet where they're, they're getting like pushed away. This is why scripture tells us it's a narrow gate. Right? If this was the easy way, if this was the wide path, the wide gate, then, then everybody would be going through it. And yet the teaching of Jesus seems to suggest to us that this is not the path that most people are going to choose. Why? Because it's a path of humility. It's a path of self-sacrifice. It's a path where, as we read at the very beginning of our service, where I'm supposed to love other people as much as I love myself. And 
And yet, when the gospel has truly changed our lives, when, when the pursuit of our hearts is to live as Christ to our world, the experience that other people have with us should make them go, what in the world is that? Hopefully you have people in your life that you are intentionally investing in. Your kids, your grandkids, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, like pouring the truths of Scripture into their lives, pouring the hope of the gospel into their lives. But my theory is that there are actually way more people who, without you even realizing it or knowing it, are observing your life. They're looking at your words and your actions and they're wondering, is there actually anything to this? Or much like this coalition from Jerusalem, who are you? What are you doing? Is there a better way of life than the one I'm living right now? This, this way of life that's been shaped not by Christ, but by the culture? And if you're like John the Baptist and your life truly looks different from the life that everyone else is living, then all the better. All the, all the more reason that there would be questions popping up. So my prayer for myself, guys, my prayer for us is that we would be so changed by Christ that our lives would increasingly look different. And not just different for the sake of being different, but different because, as we read earlier, we have truly transferred our citizenship from this world and from this culture to the realm where God rules fully and completely, where everything is as he would have it be. The realm that Jesus was constantly pointing people to, not only through his words, but also through his restorative action. When Jesus was healing, he's saying, in my Father's kingdom, these things don't exist. There isn't sickness, there isn't death, there isn't mental illness, there isn't hunger. Pointing the way. That we would be so changed by Christ that our lives would look different from everyone else and that we would become polarizing, which is super scary to some of us, some of us who are inclined to be people pleasers, right? But that we wouldn't be lukewarm, that there would be this either, man, I want that or get away. And it occurs to me that John, that John wasn't only pointing the way to Christ in word, but also in deed. He modeled humility, right? He's greater than me because he was before me. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And he would also face a brutal death. And he would go before Jesus in both of those things. Today, let us learn from his example. May our lives be a beacon pointing people to Christ and to true hope. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your scripture today. God, thank you for the account, the example of John the Baptist. Pray, Father, that we would see him for who he truly is, 
an essential, integral part of the story of Christ. One who reveals Christ to not only his disciples, but us as well. That we are recipients of and beneficiaries of his witness. And Father, I pray that we would see his example, his humility, his loyalty to God, his willingness to even go to death. And that we would see the exact same things modeled perfectly in the life of Christ. And that we would recognize that Jesus is our example for life. He's not simply our Savior. He's not only the one who has made a way for us to be reconciled to the Father, but He is the perfect man, the perfect human, who shows us how to live. Inspire us this morning, Father, with the truths of Scripture not so that we could somehow muster up the strength to go be Jesus to our world, but so that we would see that you are a good and loving Father who desires to fill us with your Holy Spirit, who desires to sanctify us, to conform us to the image of Christ. Over time, may we be a people who devote ourselves in faith and allegiance to your goodness and grace so that we might declare and demonstrate to others who the Lamb of God truly is. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us?